you know, the scripture says, study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's what we're about at Great Hills. We're a radiant church that's going to shine in many ways, up in worship, in, in discipleship, in teaching God's word, and then we, we shine outward in, in a radiant ways in missions and evangelism. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get right, right started today. Oh, Lord, we love you very much, and we thank you for a new day. This is the day that the Lord God has made, and we rejoice, and we're glad in it. And Lord, I believe you impressed me this morning as I was uh, driving in that there may be somebody or somebody's this morning that God are struggling, uh, having some hard, hard days, some hard times, whether it's them uh, personally or their health or their family or their finances, or it just may be something, God, that's just very personal between them and you. And so I just pray for them today. I ask that you would bless that person, whoever he or she is, and that you would encourage them, God, that if you could create the world uh, and if you could raise your son from the dead, and you could give us this Bible, then surely you can take care of us today, and you can, you can meet their needs. So I pray for them. I, I, I do ask you to bless. And now, Lord, just uh, pray you'd speak to us uh, as, we, as we teach this morning. I pray that you'd speak through me, and that, God, we would worship you with our minds. And, Lord, when we leave this place today, we will have been the better for it, and that we can go and be more like Jesus. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, last time we were looking at uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, and we stopped with uh, number three in my notes, which is the teachings uh, regarding uh, the Trinity. Teachings regarding the Trinity. And I have three I want to mention to you, and they'll come up on the, uh, the PowerPoint here. And then, uh, just a few words of summation, wrap, wrap it up. How do you wrap up the Trinity? How do you teach on the Trinity? It's, it's, it's awesome. But, you know, as I said, it's not awesome. It's really good because God is awesome, right? Y'all didn't correct me, so you got to correct me. You can't say awesome. Um, if, if we don't diligently study these doctrines, I, I tell you, we will not be able to perpetuate them and share them with our posterity because there are a group of people, and there are religions and cults and sects and so forth, that they will study this, not from a real biblical viewpoint, but from their own imagination, if you will. And so it's so important to study these hallmarks, these classic doctrines of the faith. The first thing I want to share with you is the members of the Trinity have different functions in relating to creation and redemption. And that, that's an important statement. The members of the Trinity, they have, uh, they're the same in essence, but they have different functions. And you see those functions primarily, do we have the PowerPoint? Is it, is it coming? Is it up there, Rick? Do you see it? Can't find it? Okay, we'll just go old school. You just got to write it all out, all right? And, um, and then we'll quiz you later if you spelled all the words right. Uh, the members of the Trinity have different functions in relating to creation and redemption. And first of all, as far as creation, we looked at this a little bit earlier, but I want to go back over it again. Each member of the Godhead is of the same nature and has the same attributes of deity. However, they have clearly different and defined roles. And you see this, again, for example, in creation. For example, God the Father created the world, as we read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then we go to Colossians 1.16 that says that God created everything through Him and for Him and by Him. Nothing was made uh, without Him. And so Jesus, you see, as the agency of, of creation. 
And, oh, I wish we had this up. Oh, we do have it up. Colossians 1.16. Do you have that? And I can't see it on the front here, um, Rick, on my, on my screen there. And I did not bring my Bible of all sun, Sundays. Is today Sunday? Uh, Thursday. You have it? You have the scripture behind me? Colossians 1.16. So I can turn around and read it. There it is. That's what I was trying to, trying to quote. For by Him, now the antecedent for Him is Jesus. All things were created that are in heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, principalities, all things were created. And I want you all to grasp that with me for just a moment, because in a moment we're going to talk about creation. Okay? All things were created uh, through Him, okay? through Jesus, and it was created for Him. And then you have the Holy Spirit operative in creation. We read this in Genesis 1-2. We've already seen that, how He was hovering over uh, you know, at the very beginning, the very inception of the universe, the Holy Spirit is, is there. And in Psalm 33, 6, if you want to jot that one down as well. So the members of the Trinity have different functions in relating to, number one, creation. And now, let's look at redemption. The Father planned the whole concept. Even, you, you remember this verse, even before the foundation of the world, it was in the heart of God to send His Son to die for the, for the sins of mankind. And so, it's orchestrated in the mind of the Father. He sends His Son, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Jesus shall never perish, but have everlasting life. But look at Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, In the fullness of time, okay, when the time was right, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, and Jesus, Jesus comes. And then the Holy Spirit, what is his role as far as, as uh, salvation and redemption go? Well, John 3, 5, Jesus talks about we are born again by the Spirit of God. And so you, you see he is one God, but he's three persons in one essence and being. And you see this very clearly, for example, in creation, and you see it also in, uh, in redemption. Okay, number two, or B, the persons of the Trinity have always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a very important statement that Grudem brings out. The persons of the Trinity, they've always been like this. And it really dispels modalism that, well, God was Father at one time, and then later on, you know, He became the Son, the God, the Son. No, no. And so they have always existed in this triunity, these three persons and in one entity. Uh, the Father has always been the Father. The Son has always, helped me out, been the Son. The Holy Spirit has always been the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Godhead has the same divine nature, yet their distinctions are seen in the way that they relate to us or relate to the created order, and especially as, a, as they relate to us in salvation. Uh, the members of the Godhead, ontologically the same, same in essence and divine nature. But let me give you this word. This is an interesting word, and I've read this word a few times in my studies, uh, not only in Grudem, but, but in like Dr. Richard Mellick, I believe he's the first one to introduce this concept to me, economic subordination. Economic subordination. And what that means is there are roles within the Trinity they're the same essence, but they have different functions and different. Um, and, they, and, and subordination is not, they're subordinate in their nature, but they are subordinate in the way that they operate. For example, and we talked about this last time, the Son did not send the Father. The Father sent the Son, and the Father and the Son send uh, the Holy Spirit. 
And you've probably heard this before, and I, and I see a beautiful parallel here in the Trinity. And, and somebody said, if God is a triune God, and He's always existed that way, and He's always been in fellowship with Himself, if you will, should not we see some glimpses of that in His created order? And I think the answer to that question is yes. And, the first, and there's two areas that I see this beautifully portrayed. One is in marriage, and two is in the church. Because in marriage... The husband is no better than the wife, and the wife is no better ontologically than the husband. But yet, if you read the Bible, the Bible has an economic subordinationism there. It has an order where, uh, whether you like this or not, it's, it doesn't matter. I mean, God commissions the guy, the man, to give spiritual leadership, headship to, to the home, okay? And, but the wife is in no way inferior, just like the Son of God is not inferior to the Father. They're the same in essence. But, you know, you've got to have somebody give leadership. Uh, anything with no head is dead. Anything with two heads is a freak. Have you ever heard that? I mean, some, somebody's got to give. You've got to give leadership. What's another example? How about the church? The church is a good example. As a pastor, I would, of course, Jesus is, he's, everything's about Jesus. He is the head, the king of our church. But... He has ordered it, and, and you read the New Testament, it's very clear that the pastor, the elder, is to give leadership. Now, does that mean I am better than you in any way? Absolutely not. Does that mean I am smarter than you? Absolutely not. Does that mean I'm more spiritual than you? Absolutely not. But in God's sovereignty, He chose me for such a time as this to give leadership, headship to uh, the body of Christ, and, and you are uh, the body. So I hope, that, I hope that helps you some. We see it reflected and I'm going to show you two more examples where you see signs of the Trinitarian God reflected in his creation. And I, and I think you'll, I think you'll uh, appreciate what Gruden brings out. Okay, C or three. Um, one is the members of the Trinity have different functions in relating to creation and redemption. Two, the persons of the Trinity have always existed. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Number three, God is one. Now this is where it gets really interesting. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you all before I read this, I do not understand this. Does that help you any? You're like, well, brother, if you don't understand it, I don't know. Well, and, and that's okay. It's okay that I cannot fully grasp because I have nothing to compare it to. I have, I, I, okay, so let me read it. God is one undivided being, and yet in this one being there exists three persons. Grudem writes it this way. Somehow, God's being is so much greater than ours that within his one undivided being, there can be an unfolding into interpersonal relationships, so that there can be three distinct persons. It sounds like he's talking <laughs> both sides of his mouth, but, but he's not. And then he says, if, if you have a hard time grasping that, well, welcome to the human race, because we have nothing, because God is so absolutely unique. He is, how can you be three persons in one, or one person in, in three, and that's who he is? He quote, and I'm going to quote him again. He says, This tri-personal form of being is far beyond our ability to comprehend. I want to say amen. Thank you for writing that. It is a kind of existence far different from anything we have experienced and far different from anything else in the universe. End of quote. Yes, he's, he's just amazing. Okay, so... I want to conclude with a, just a couple of statements before we segue into our next, uh, next lesson. First of all, I just want to say, we, we have to learn what we can about the Trinity, but ultimately we have to be at peace with things that we do not understand. 
And, and I'm weary, I'm concerned about the person who says, oh man, I've got that figured out, it's just ABC. No, no, it's not ABC, There's, it's ABX or whatever. It just, it doesn't compute in our minds and we have to be at peace with it. Our finite minds cannot completely grasp who or how God is one undivided but three persons, yet each person is completely God uh, within himself. Some people would call that a contradiction. I wouldn't call it a contradiction. I would call it a paradox or a mystery. How about that? Just like some people say, well, the Bible has errors. And I would say, no, I disagree. The Bible has alleged discrepancies or alleged errors. But once you unpack it and study it and compare and contrast, uh, you'll find that it, it is without error. Okay, God has unity and diversity within his being. And that's... When I say that statement at 659, I'm thinking, that's a, lot to, that's a lot to grasp this morning. But let me say it again. God has unity and diversity in his uh, being. And we see this unity and diversity. I gave you two examples a moment ago. One was marriage, a husband and wife relationship. And then the, uh, the other one is also uh, the church. Okay? In the church, we have many members. You with me? Many members in the church at Great Hills Baptist Church. And yet we are a unity, or at least we should be, unified and in harmony under God's authority. And so you have this, this unity okay, amidst this diversity. I think another example would be the human body, if, if you will. Okay? The human body is one entity, and yet it has very different functions and hands and eyes and feet and so forth. But here's the interesting one he closes with. And I was really thinking through this. And the more I, I look at this, the more I like it. Now remember he said... Be careful using analogies and illustrations and, and, to compare to God. To say, well, the Trinity is just like... He said, don't do that. And I agree with that. I, I don't think we should ever say, well, the Trinity is just like... Think of it like this. It's just like... The Bible never does that. The Bible never compares the triune God to a, to a husband, father, brother, or water, steam, ice. And so I would be careful in saying it's just like that. But I would say... If it helps you understand, and though it has limitations, think about it like this. Does that make sense? Think about it like, okay, and this is what he says. He gives two examples. He gives athletic team and a symphony as examples of a one entity, unity, yet very diverse, especially diverse in its functionality. Uh, the athletic team, they should be unified and have one purpose, unless you're the Cowboys, excuse me. But you should have one... <laughs> One purpose, one unified goal of winning, and yet not everybody's the quarterback. You know, you got to have the wide receivers and the offensive line and so forth. So you have the one entity and diversity, and he says, think about it like that as far as an athletic team, a symphony, a corporation, a church. All of those, I think, are good examples that would reflect our triune God who is one entity unified, and yet there is diversity among, uh, among its members. And then he closes with this quote, and I'll close with this too. Well, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Within this prism of unity amidst diversity, we get a glimpse of the glory of God as he exists as one being with three diverse persons. And here's Grudem's quote. Within these human examples, we can see a faint reflection of the glory of God in his Trinitarian existence. And I hope you keep that in mind, a faint reflection, not an identical representation. Oh, the triune God... He's just like, we can't say that. He's just so much bigger. He's just so much more transcendent. And that we mere mortals just cannot fully wrap our 
intellects, our minds around it. And I'm still thinking through this, and I, I, need, I think I, I need to be at peace with what I'm about to say, but I've, I've, I've never been challenged to think this way until I was reading Gruden. That even in eternity, you're not going to understand God completely. And I, and I scratch my head on that. I'm thinking, well, what, what? I see Him as He is. And, but I think Gruden may be right. Even in eternity, with a resurrected, glorified body, what, what about this? What if we spend an eternity getting to know Him? and worshiping Him. Like, we'll have all eternity, and He'll, after we've been there a, a billion years, He'll say, well, let me show you something else you, you didn't know about me. And then we're just like, oh, that's amazing! And we just worship Him, you know, for 10,000 and thousands upon years. And so, I, I guess I'm okay with that, because that reflects more the majesty of God, the glory of God, the transcendence of God, that even in heaven, we will learn more about Him and, and worship Him. So... Okay, I know there's a, there's a whole lot more that could be said about the Trinity than these five pages of notes, but um, we're, going to, uh, we're going to wrap this section up. If you have a question uh, as it relates to the Trinity, hold on to it. Uh, hopefully in a few minutes we'll give you an opportunity to answer, ask some of those questions. Um, the next session is, is actually lesson four, but I know we're in week five. Do you know after a few minutes we will have completed the one half of our first semester? We call this in school, we call this the midterm, all right? And so, yeah, Bryant was, uh, he, he's in town, you know, he, he has a fall break up at Dallas Baptist University, and it worked out perfectly, Mike. We were able to get our pictures taken for the pictorial directory. And, uh, boy, I like that one. Yeah, how about this one? Yeah. Next thing you know, we're buying the whole thing, you know. I'm like, oh, mercy. Well, anyhow, he goes, Dad, I've got a Greek midterm exam on Friday. And I just thought, that's wonderful. <laughs> Bless you. And he goes, I said, how, do you, how, do you, how are you doing with it? He goes, it's, he said, it's just hard. And he said, math was easy for me. That's my son speaking. You will never hear Brother Danny say, Tom, you will never hear Brother Danny say, no, math was easy for me. Greek was easy for me. <clears throat> I don't understand that, how my mind works. Hebrew, Greek, German languages are easier for me. I, I just get that. But I can look at numbers or triangles, and I'm like, I don't get that at all. But the good news for us is, there is no test. You all make a hundred. Ain't that good? You can finish systematic theology and somebody can say, well, what did you make? And you say, I made a <laughs> hundred. I got it all right. All right. Now, he, he, this may be, I can't say it's my favorite, but it certainly is one of my favorite doctrines. It's the doctrine of creation. And I love talking about creation because uh, in order to have a creation, then there has to be a creator and who is this super intelligent being who's created everything <clears throat> that, that exists? This is pages 43 through 47 in your little book. <clears throat> Excuse me. In your little book, 43 through 47. In your big book, it would be pages 262 through 314, which is a lot of, um, a lot of material that he covers in creation. And I'm, I'm just fascinated with it. I love it. This is something that I started when I was teaching uh, evangelism at Southeastern Seminary in 1996. I started teaching, and I began this journey, which continues to this day, of studying creation. <clears throat> I just love the, I love the discipline of studying how God did it, why God did it, the evidences for God doing it. And obviously, when you juxtapose creation 
over against evolution, there are, there are major discrepancies. Not with microevolution. I don't think any of us would have a problem with microevolution. Changes within that same species. But macroevolution would be a horse of a different color. I mean, you know, that's, that's what Grudem is going to compare. He's going to compare atheistic, Darwinian, uh, macroevolution over against the doctrine of creation because they are absolutely at opposite ends of, of the pole. You either got to say God created it or God used um, the Darwinian uh, macroevolutionary process of mass mutation, natural selection, randomness, and as a result of that, we got everything that we've got. We either did it through, God did it, or um, we can explain it through uh, evolution. And it, sh it isn't coming any surprise to you that unless it's a Christian university, uh, every university and college teaches as a fact they don't teach it as a theory, but they teach it as the fact of evolution. And um, so, I'm excited. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to... Let me, let me say this as I get started. Um, as you know, we're, we've been talking about Ken Ham. Ken Ham from Australia is coming November the 3rd, and his ministry is called Answers in Genesis. And um, I talked to one of his representatives yesterday, and he told me, he goes, uh, uh, he said... We have started this billboard campaign, and we have one in Times Square in New York City. And sure enough, they have this huge digital billboard. It says, to my atheist friends, I am so glad that you are wrong. <laughs> that's, what, that's literally what it says. So the New York Times yesterday wrote a full-page article. It's in section A22 in the New York Times about answers in Genesis. And it doesn't you would think, well, I bet they just blasted him, especially because he's a young earth kind of guy. They didn't as, as much. And then I was, I said, well, I got real interested. I went to his Facebook page, and CNN two days ago did a full article on answers in Genesis. I don't know if we know how big time Ken Ham is. Ken is the, he is big time, and it's just a miracle, a miracle. And I'm going to tell this story one day, and I get emotional when I tell about it, how we met, how we talked, and how God spoke to him, and he said, I'm, I will come uh, to Great Hills and not charge you anything. I said, well, hold on, I've been around the block a couple times, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. He said, no. I said, okay, well, we'll, we'll cover, he, he said, well, I'll bring my team, and, and I was thinking, oh, team, you got his airfare and his meals and hotels. He said, no. He said, we're, we're covering all that too. I said, no, no, that don't make sense. I said, what, what do you mean? I was reading the book the circle maker. And I drew a circle months ago and I said, God, would you bring Ken Ham to Great Hills Baptist Church? And, and I got off the elevator after speaking to him in Houston and when I got on the elevator, the Holy Spirit said, did you not ask? And it blew me away. I was like, I did ask and you answered that and it's, it's amazing. All they're going to do is they're going to sell their products. They said, just let us sell our products. They'll bring nine pallets of products here and, and they said they will buy every one of them uh, because it's, he's very fascinating. You may not agree with him totally, uh, but he is extremely engaging and fascinating and deeply hated. Deeply hated. In fact, the guy told me, don't be surprised if there are protesters at your church because uh, Ken just, he just has that lightning rod effect kind of guy. In the CNN article, it says, In June of 2012, Gallup's latest findings showed that 46% of Americans believed in creationism. 32% believed in evolution guided by God, and 15% believed in atheistic evolution. 
Now, this is in the CNN article. It says, For as long as Gallup has been conducting surveys, creationism has remained far and away the most popular answer. With 40 to 47% of Americans surveyed saying that they believe that God created humans in their present form at one point within the past 10,000 years. End of quote. And that's Gallup poll saying that half of Americans still, still believe this and believe that, that God did it according to the way he said. As I read uh, Grudem, I was, I was uh, fascinated with his reliance upon Philip Johnson. He relies heavily on Philip Johnson in his big book here, the, in the Systematic Theology book. Philip Johnson, I think he's retired, but he's a Harvard grad who taught uh, law at the University of California, Berkeley. And he wrote a book called Darwin on Trial, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great book. He, he takes Darwinism, macroevolution, and he puts it on trial as to find out if there's evidence to substantiate the claims of uh, evolution. And um, he's, he's, he's brilliant. It's an excellent book. And so as I was reading Grudem, I was rem- reminded how I read Johnson's book. In fact, I got to eat breakfast with Philip Johnson a few years ago. And remember, I was, um, I'm just studying, I'm just learning, I'm, I'm devouring all this stuff, and we ate breakfast together, and I, I just quizzed him and asked him question after question, and finally he turned to somebody and goes, who is that guy? And somebody said, well, he's just one of our young, crazy professors, he just wants to learn about this stuff, and I do, and I still do, because there, there are two things primarily, when you witness to atheists and secularists, they will say, the Bible's not true, and evolution answers everything. Am I not right on that? Is that not the two primary arguments against our faith? That the Bible's not true, and evolution explains uh, everything. So I'm dependent upon people like Philip Johnson, uh, Michael Behe, who I don't think is a Christian, but his book, uh, Darwin on, um, Darwin's Black Box, The Biochemist's Challenge to Evolution, is a great read. I have that one in my library, and I don't have this one, but uh, he's quoted often. It's Michael Denton, a Ph.D. in uh, biochemistry, King's College in London, wrote this book called Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. So what's interesting to me is, of course, Christians, we, we disagree with macroevolution, but it's interesting to me how the academics, the academia, the intellectuals who are not believers in Christ how, are now beginning to rise up and challenge uh, this doctrine of, of evolution. Philip Johnson is a believer. I think he's a Presbyterian, but uh, he has written probably the greatest uh, critique. All right. Ooh, this is fun. Where do you start? Let's start with this. God created the universe. Everybody okay with that? Even if you're not, God created the universe, all right? You say, where do you get such a, such a thought? The first verse in the Bible says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created uh, the heavens and the earth. Uh, there was no pre-existent matter in the beginning. God created it out of nothing. Can anybody tell me the Latin word for that? Ex nihilo. That's right. It means out of nothing. Ex nihilo means God created it. He did not pull from different whatever pre-existing matter, material. He just spoke it into being. Uh, Psalm 33, 6 and 9 talk about this. And I'm going to read about six scriptures to you. Three in, uh, two in the old, uh, three in the new that talk about God as our creator. In addition to Genesis 1.1. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. That's verse 6. Verse 9 in the same chapter says, For he spoke, and it was. He spoke, and it was done. 
He commanded and it stood fast. And you come over to the New Testament, we'll look at John 1, 3. All things were made through Him. That's a lot like Colossians 1.16. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Okay, let's go to the next one. For by Him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. And this is the Colossians passage. All things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things. Now, I want you to keep thinking about this, all right? If it's here, God created it, all right? All things were created through Him, through Christ, and they were created for Him, uh, for Christ. So since God created everything, that means He owns everything. And He alone is to be worshipped and uh, praised. The second of the Ten Commandments says, don't make any carved images uh, to, and worship them. Because, and, and the commandment one uh, is the Lord your God. You should worship Him and Him only. Not other entities, deities, not the created order, but worship God and God alone. Okay? And if God created everything, then everything is special and has a purpose. You see where I'm going with this? If God created it, He owns it, and He should be worshipped. And if God created it, then it is special, it is, it is prized. And when we see something in creation that is beautiful, we should praise God for it because He did it. It is His handiwork. I mean, just stepping out of my office last night about 7 o'clock, I looked up and looked to the west, and there was a sunset. Now, I don't know, I still do this, y'all. I still just, I am, I'm just caught in my tracks. Stop where I am, and I just look and I worship God because all the colors and all the beauty, and how do you, how, how do, you do that? How do, where does that come from? You know, I heard somebody, somebody told me one time, they said, yeah, Brother Danny, isn't evolution amazing when they were looking at a, at a sunset? And they were joking with me, and I was like, yeah, right. Um, so when you see God's created order, and God's blessed me and allowed me to go to some, some beautiful places like Hawaii. I don't know how you could be an atheist and live in Hawaii. I mean, it is the most beautiful place on, on earth, or at least that I've ever seen. Um, went to the Grand Canyon and just looked at the the symmetry, the, the beauty, the grandeur of that humongous canyon. And, and I'm just like, wow, isn't that, isn't that gorgeous? Then Yellowstone, go up to Yellowstone or Yosemite, and you just look and see. And that's, most of that's just in America. And you, of course, outside America, God's created order. It's just, it's just, it's just amazing. Uh, God created the world, the Bible says, in six days. And this includes His highest creation. That would be a man and woman. Remember this, Genesis 2, 7. God formed Adam from the, from the dust of the earth, and he formed Eve from what? From the rib of the man, Adam. God created the world, so he owns it. He should be praised and worshipped for it, and he is absolutely distinct from it. He is transcendent from his creation, which means he's above it and he's greater than what he created. He's involved with his creation, however, uh, I disagree with deism, which says yeah, God created it, He wound it up, and He shot it forth, and now He's totally detached from it, He has no interest in it, and it just spins in orbit and does what it needs to do. And that's what deism teaches, and I disagree with that. And I also disagree with pantheism, that says God not only created it, but God is in it. And when you worship the trees and the sunset, and you worship uh, His created order, then you're worshiping God, because pantheism says God is in it. But He's not in it. He's imminent, 
He's involved in it, but he's not, he's not actually in his creation. Job 12.10 says this. I think we have this one on the, on the screen. In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Whew. I mean, everything God created, even our very breath, he, he grants that to us. And now materialism or humanism says that the material universe is all that we have and there's no, there's no God. Uh, I mentioned pantheism says if there is a God, then he's, he's intrinsic, he's involved, he's absolutely part of his creation. Many Eastern religions have this philosophy, okay? And it thus mitigates the personality of God if he's not separate and transcendent from his creation. And it also mitigates the personality of man. If, if God is just everything, then God is nothing, okay? But we believe God is, he did everything, but he's separate. He's, he's apart from, he's holier than what he, has, um, what he has created. Dualism says that God and the universe are both eternal. Um, a good example of this is Star Wars. Let the, let the what be with you? The force, I don't know if y'all know this, that the force is good, but there's an eternal good and there's an eternal, there's an eternal evil. And so that, the for, that this whole concept of, of the force, um, there is a force and he has a name. You know what I'm saying? Well, I, don't, I don't like people say, man, the man upstairs, you know. No, that's not his name. You know, he has other names, but the man upstairs is not. Y'all know I got in trouble one time. This couple wanted to get married in my church. I was pastoring, and, and I had to approve the music or disapprove it. And said, I tip my hat to the man upstairs. I said, you can't use that in the church. I said, well, why not? I said, he's not the man upstairs. He's Almighty God, Holy God. And they fired me, but it was okay. No, I'm just kidding. They haven't been fired yet. Amen. All right, so uh, some more introductory comments as we get going. God created the universe to manifest his power and glory. And what he created was good. Good, good, good. Good, 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 good. Very good. Okay? God created it in Genesis. Isaiah 43, 7. I don't have this on the screen, but next time I teach this, I will put this one on the screen. Isaiah 43, 7. It just talks about his, oh, how awesome God is at His creation. And then Psalm 19, 1 and 2, and you know that one probably. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. I think it was, yeah, it was Isaac Newton who said, you only have to look at a man's hand and see his thumb to know that there is a God. That's a powerful statement. You only have to look at a man's hand, a woman's hand, and look at that thumb. Because that is one of the coolest looking things. That's one of the coolest things. A thumb, you know. Without that thumb, it gets very difficult to live, you know. Have you ever hurt something in your body? You say, well, of course. And you realize just how incredibly dependent you were on that part of your body. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, even a pinky, even a calf muscle. This little fella down here. When I tore that, my whole world just spinning out of order. I mean, I just, I mean you can't get around. I mean, you use your calf to brush your teeth. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And God's created us like this. And, and just one little something's out of whack, then, uh, then, then, then we feel it. Again, I think the greatest argument for God being the creator is man. Is mankind. Just the way we are made. And, the, and not only that, but the, the soul of man, the spirit of man. Where does that, where does that come from? And the Bible says that God, he spoke it into existence. He spoke it into to being. And he either did or he, or he didn't. And I certainly believe he did. I'm like um, all my kids when they were at CCI uh, 
Cal, the, uh, the book by Geisler and Turek. You remember that one? I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And that is a great book. And I'm so glad my son Leighton read that book. Because he read that book, he goes to ACC in the biology class and he's able to debate the biology professor with a PhD in uh, evolutionary biology. And uh, Leighton's just 19 years old, but it's amazing. When you have truth on your side, truth is powerful. And truth is that God did it. Leighton made the second highest grade in the, in the first science test. And uh, there were two A's in the class. He made one, and uh, this girl made one. And, and he said, Dad, the teacher doesn't like me anymore. And I'm, I'm not surprised. I think she would like for him to be dumb, you know. Because that way we can just say, well, all those Christians, they don't know what they're talking about. And yet, Leighton is anything but. I mean, he, he gets science. He, he, he understands it. And he asks questions. He does this at home. And I'm like, he asks so many questions. And, and I can just see him doing that in class. And I just laugh. I think it's funny. All right, so let's look at some theories on creation. All right, there are many theories about the origin of the universe. The most prominent secular theory is the Big Bang Theory. You know, 14 uh, billion years ago, there was a big bang and, and everything that we have and its laws and its order and its symmetry and its physics, its chemistry, everything just happened. Shazam! Boom! And, uh, and you've heard this argument, yeah, I believe in the big bang, you know, God spoke it and boom, it, it, it happened. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay with saying that, that God spoke it into existence because he did. Uh, now, there people debate. I'm a young earth guy. I'm going to go ahead and tell you all that. I'm a, I'm a young earth guy. Ken Ham is a young earth guy. Uh, Philip, uh, not Philip, uh, Morris, Dr. Henry Morris, uh, who taught science at Virginia Tech University and engineered, chaired the engineering department, are a young earth. But, but a lot of people are not young earth. Grudem's not. And uh, I don't disagree with Grudem on a lot, but I, boy, he goes to, it's, it, I was reading him, and he's so fascinating because he gives all of these arguments for a young earth, then he gives all the arguments for an old earth, but he won't come out and just say it, but he's, he kind of leans more toward the, uh, the, the older. But anyhow, we'll, we'll get to that uh, in a little bit. Another prominent secular theory, uh, besides um, uh, the Big Bang, of course, is the, uh, the theory of evolution. It postulates 4.5 billion years ago the cell appeared, and everything evolved from that one cell. And what is the definitive work? Who wrote it and when did he write it? Somebody help me. The secular definitive work in evolution is what? Charles Darwin, Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection in 1859. Theistic evolution, however, says that evolution happened, but the way Darwin said it happened, but God guided the whole process. I am absolutely not in that. Uh, and Grudem eviscerates that. He says that is, that is impossible. You, you cannot have a theistic uh, evolution. It's a weak argument un, deemed untenable by Scripture. Why would God use a process that was so random with no purpose and lack much-needed evidence like macroevolution? Why would he use it? Random mutation is the critical piece to evolution. Okay, random, randomness. And when you look at the amazing precision and the coding in the universe, especially in the complex physical and spiritual makeup of mankind, evolution is impossible, whether it's theistic or, or atheistic. Um, in my humble and accurate opinion. Uh, Genesis 1, 11 and 21 says that God made the plants and the animals according to their kind, all right? And there was no need for random mass mutations if God made it like he said he made it. And Grudem, he's kind of funny. 
when he says this, and I quoted him. He said, if this is true, if theistic evolution is true, then, it, then the Bible would have to read like this. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And after 387,492,871 attempts, God finally made a mouse that worked. <laughs> and that's, he said, you have to believe that if you believe in uh, theistic uh, uh, evolution, which he totally nullifies it. Again, Adam and Eve would nullify a theistic evolution because it necessitates millions and millions of years of man evolving from a living organism through multiple mutations like these ape-like creatures, and then you come to man. But what you find in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, is just the opposite. Um, you see God uh, creating them fully, you know, creating them. Um, plus, there's no evidence to substantiate the theory of evolution. There's absolutely zero evidence for it. Macroevolution. Um, Rice University biochemist, a couple weeks ago, I read his article. He said, I invite any of my colleagues, please. I'm a biochemist. He teaches at Rice. He said, would you please have lunch with me and show me the proof for evolution? I don't even know if this guy's a believer or not. He said, nobody takes me up on my lunch. He says, because they know it's not true. He said, deep down, they, they, had to, they have to know it's not true because there is no, there is no evidence for it. He said, wait a minute, brother Dan, there, there is evidence. You know, in 1859, Charles Darwin said, the greatest problem with my theory and he, is this, is the intermediate links are not there, the, the missing links. He said, but I'm sure that in time, we will find them. It's only a matter of time, and we will find uh, where the ape, literally, he's this ape-like creature, it becomes this, this human, or this dog becomes this donkey, or this, uh, this whatever becomes this. And here we are in 2013, we still can't find them. And the reason we can't find them is because they don't exist. Because God, God created it. And I've read, and, and Grudem's helped me, and other people's helped me, and they, they list these, uh, at best, spurious um, proofs or evidences. And I, I can't remember all the words, but they'll say, oh, this is, a, this is an example of a half a bird and a half an animal or whatever. And, and I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't see it. And it's interesting to me when somebody is, somebody like these guys that... Um, the, the biochemist at Rice, or a Michael Denton, or, or a Behe. You know, Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, it is, it is huge. It is a devastating criticism of evolution from a biochemist uh, viewpoint. And he has this thing called the, the principle of the irreducibility. He said some things are irreducibly complex, and they, therefore, mathematically could have never evolved because it's irreducibly complex. A cell could not have evolved because what good is a third of a cell, Okay. And then he said the eye is another amazing example of what refutes evolution because in order for evolution to happen over eons of time, you've got to have partial vision, partial sight. Well, then that defeats it and you can't survive. Do you all follow that? That's brilliant. And that's Behe, and I don't think Behe's a believer. He's a biochemist at Lehigh University, and it's called Darwin's Black Box. And I read it, and when he got in the footnotes, I quit reading it. I was like, whoa. I mean, he, he did a diagram of coagulation. He said, now this is what happens when you cut yourself and when you bleed and the blood begins to clot. Here's what happens. He's got these, Herb, you would appreciate this. I mean, X, Y, Z, and blah, 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 blah. And he's got all this, this science and chemistry. And he said, all of this has to happen when you cut your arm. 
And when you bleed and it coagulates, all of these chemical equations have to come together. I mean, really? How in the world does that just, just happen? Um, again, I don't have enough faith to believe it just happened. So let's look at some challenges to evolution. No one disputes microevolution. I said that a minute ago. Small changes within a species like the size and variation of horses or human race, our differences and so forth. But that is not the same as, as macroevolution, um, which sees everything as a product of a mindless, purposeless process through mutations and, and selection. I've mentioned uh, some of these, and I have all this in my notes. If you're, if you're interested in it, the, the, the names of the guys, and, and, and for example, Johnson, where he, where he worked, where he, um, at UCAL, Berkeley. And uh, it's a really a funny quote here in a minute. Because, I mean, think about it, guys. UCAL, Berkeley, and you're debunking evolution. I mean, you, you, you think that goes over good? You think that's possible? And, and, and when I was talking to him, he said, uh, he said yeah, one of my colleagues said, he said, uh, give me the cell, you can have everything else. And Johnson looked at him and says, that's not right, that's not fair. Because the cell is so incredibly uh, complex, and, and, if, and if God created the cell, then it makes sense that God created everything else. But that guy, he's struggling. I mean, his colleague is struggling. He says, uh, give, give me the cell, and, uh, or you can, you can have everything else. And I thought, that's just that's hilarious. Okay, natural selection, survival of the fittest. Um, what, is it, uh, what does it prove? Well, this is what uh, Grudem says. It proves nothing about any supposed mutation to produce different, more fit offspring over the course of many uh, generations. Um, I mentioned to you a moment ago, they, the, these are challenges to evolution. This is the principle of irreducible complexity by Michael Behe. I was just talking about this. I was ahead of myself a little bit. He talked about the cell. He talked about the eye. Um, Okay, the bombardier beetle. This is a fascinating one. The bombardier beetle. Have y'all heard of this bombardier beetle creature? Now, this, I got this out of uh, Grudem, and I think he, he was quoting Michael Denton, The Theory in Crisis. The bombardier beetle has a repellent it produces in its body at a temperature of 212 degrees Fahrenheit. And the bombardier beetle has that mechanism where it produces that, and, it, and when it emits that, it burns its prey. It burns its enemy. This little bombardier beetle. And they're arguing. They're saying, well, it could have never evolved because it had to come in an entity. I mean, you can't evolve into emitting 212 degrees. It, it has to. That's a great argument. I don't, I don't have a response. I wouldn't have a response to that if I was an evolutionist because it had, to be, it, had to be, it had to come as a full unit. What about paleontology? What about the discipline of, of the fossil record? Again, this is... Uh, 1859, Charles Darwin, I don't have this in my notes, but I remember Stephen Jay Gould talking about this at Harvard and talking about he's a strong uh, atheist. And he says, well, uh, I think it's called punctuated equilibrium. He said, well, it, it happens so fast, there's no evidence for it. That's why you can't see the intermediate links, because it happened so fast that there, it, it, there, there's, no, there's no evidence. It happened in, in such quickness and rapid succession that, that the evidence has, has faded away. So... Um, Michael Denton says uh, the transitional links and the power of random selection have, been, uh, have not been validated by one single empirical discovery of science since 1859. And I don't, like I said, I don't think this guy's a Christian. Uh, Michael Denton said, Darwin's theory, transitional links, and the power of random selection 
have not been validated by one single imperial discovery or scientific evidence since 1959. All right, molecular structures show commonality is 734. Ooh, oh, I want to get through just a little bit more of this. Molecular structures show commonality, and Darwinists assume, and they insist, that because of common molecular structure, there has to be common ancestry. Okay? The lower species must have evolved into uh, the higher species. Uh, but Gleason Archer, interesting, he, he brings out this argument. He says, well, you've been to a museum, and you see the, the ape as he evolves, and you see in these successions as the ape becomes eventually. Y'all with me? I mean, that's, that's what you see when you go. He goes, that's interesting to me. He says, because there's no evidence for that transitional creature. But when you go to the National or a Museum of Science and, and Industry, you will see the evolution of a car and how it literally went piece by piece, how the Model T Ford in 1900 evolved into the Ferrari today, if you will. And he says, and there's evidence. Each stage along the way, there's definitive uh, conspicuous evidence to show, uh, show that it happened. Um, he says, a continuity of basic design furnishes uh, no evidence, whatever, that any lower species phased into the next higher species by any sort of internal dynamic as evolution uh, demands. Uh, here's, here's the, I think, the most difficult challenge for evolution, and that is, how did life begin? That's why he said, you know, give me the cell. Because the cell, I had a friend of mine describe it to me this way. He said when Darwin didn't have an electron microscope like what we have today, he thought the cell was a, like a ping pong ball. But the cell is anything but that. It is irreducibly complex. It, 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 it is absolutely fascinating. People who know a lot more about it than I do, biochemists would, I think, would agree. Um, so the likelihood of a living organism erupting from prebiotic soup is like a tornado that would sweep through the junkyard and produce a 747 Boeing jet. I like that analogy. But even if you do give them 4.5 billion years, the probability of one cell from a tree or a human simply appearing is mathematically impossible. Now, this is from a, a secular atheist, I don't know if they're atheists, but they're secular evolutionary scientists. Who, they are the ones that created this, according to Grudem. This is their theory. In order for one cell to appear randomly, is 10 to the 340 millionth power. That is one chance in 10 with 340 million zeros after it. One chance in, three, in 10 to the 340 millionth power. And they say, but we, we believe that. Because if we don't believe that, then we have to believe that. And we can't believe that, because we just can't believe that. But we can believe a 1 in 10 to the 340 millionth power that everything happened. Well, Francis Crick disagrees. He says, no, it didn't just happen. Uh, he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1973 for his, uh, well, DNA, you know, Francis Crick. He, and I've shared this in church before, and I still, I, I chuckle. And, and Johnson's the one that showed this to me in Philip Johnson's book, Darwin on Trial. He says, Francis Crick says, no, you got it wrong. Uh, it, it did not just happen because uh, many, 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 many eons ago, the aliens got in their interstellar ship and they traveled to earth, they landed, and cells came out of that, and so that's how everything started. And I remind you, this is a Nobel Peace Prize winner for co-discovery of the macromolecule of DNA. Okay? And Grudem puts it like this, he says, it seems as though they will believe in anything 
So long as it does not so long as it is not belief in a personal God of Scripture who calls us to forsake our pride. Come on now, he's going to start preaching now. Mr. Gruden's going to start preaching. It calls us to forsake our pride, humble ourselves before him, and ask his forgiveness for failure to obey his moral standards and submit ourselves to his moral commands for the rest of our, of our lives. They would much rather believe anything than have to give an account to this, uh, to this God. Let me close with this statement here. If we believe that we are the result of a mindless, purposeless force, then what is the significance and the meaning of life? It's like my friend, and he is, he's my friend, the atheist in my neighborhood. He says, nothing matters. When you die, it's done. There's nothing else. Nothing. There is no, no, no purpose. It's so sad. If there is no God or supreme judge to hold us accountable, then what prevents us from living like we choose and doing what we want? These are just my statements, and I'm just kind of wrapping this up. And if we take the survival of the fittest to its most logical conclusion, then why care for those who are not fit? Why care for the elderly? Why care for the mentally handicapped? You can see Nazi Germany, you can see them buying in to this, you know, the, 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 the preeminence of, of a race. And it has its roots in Darwinian evolution. But if, on the other hand, we argue from a standpoint that this is morally wrong, then there's a whole other set of problems for evolutionists. Because when you start, you say, well, why don't you just kill the elderly? And an evolutionist or, or an atheist would say, well, that's wrong. Who says that's wrong? Where do you get a sense of right and wrong? Then you've opened up Pandora's box. You have opened up a huge argument for the existence of God because evolution cannot produce feeling. It cannot. It is a purely naturalistic entity. It cannot produce love and, and joy, and, and it just can't. So, and oughtness or ethics and, and morals. Okay, I'm almost done, so, but I am done because we've got we to gotta stop at 740. We've got uh, about a page and a half left, and then we'll go to our, uh, to our next one. Oh, this is fun. I, it, y'all, I just cannot wait Ken Ham comes. I, I'm just so thrilled to, to have him come. And, um, and him speak to, our, uh, speak to our church. And he's going to, he says now, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning at your church, I need to be in the pulpit at 11.05. And I'm going to let him. I mean, Brother Terry and I, we've talked about this. We're going to say, welcome, everybody come. And Ken Ham's going to start speaking. And he's going to speak till about three or four. And no, I'm just kidding. He's going to speak for an hour. And then we're going to be dismissed. And uh, we'll have the invitation, and then he's coming back at 6, and he's going to speak for an hour and 20 minutes. And then he said, and that's when I stop, and I just say, you can ask me anything you want to ask me. And, you, and he says, and I'll stay as long as I need to stay. And I said, and how much are you charging us for this? He said, just take up a love offering if you'd like to. And I hope our people really bless them, you know. I hope we really give generously to him and to his ministry. And he'll tell us about the big ark of Noah's ark that he's replicating building up in Cincinnati. Uh, their museum, I think, has already had its two millionth visitor come through, and they're raising money for this ark, and so some of you may want to contribute and help them with, with that. Um, again, you're not going to agree, you, you may not, unless you're a young earth guy, you're not going to agree with, with everything with him. But, you know, and I like what Gruden points out. He goes, listen, if you're a Christian and you believe in young earth and you talk to somebody who is, not, who is a Christian and they don't see it quite that way, then you need to be kind. And you don't need to get, and here's my statement. 
Christians, we argue more on how things began and how things are going to end more than anything else. Is that not true? Creation and eschatology, we just, you know. And he would also say, now, if, you're a, if you look at the starlight and say that's billions of years, that's evidence, and you young earth, how, how could you be so ri- ridiculously ignorant? He, Grudem says, you can't do that. You've got to have congeniality, and you've got to argue in a way that is kind and respectful for, with, with one another. Okay? Any comments real quick? I've given you t- two minutes. I mean, surely there's plenty of time for questions. Yes, sir. Or, The what? The size of resources. Okay, resources. Economic subordination means it's like you have this order because it's something dealing with resources. It's a good good point. The economic subordination. Herb says he has a problem with that because um, I'm not sure exactly I understand why because, but he's explaining it uh, really good. Say it one more time. Economic is the sign that deals with scarce resources. Is the sign? Science. Oh, okay. I got you. I got you. Okay. Okay. I'm I'm following you now. Okay. Um, yeah, I think you, your your criticism is on the word economic. It's not on subordinate nation. Okay, that's cool. Anybody else? A comment? A criticism? A question? Or a hallelujah? Or a carol? Yes. Yeah. 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 He is. He, he spoke recently in Houston, 4,000 people at a homeschool convention. Uh, I think I got this right. 50% of homeschoolers, uh, you think their families are really religious, go to church. Half of them don't. I don't know if y'all knew that half of them don't. And uh, so he's down there speaking. And man, they're protesting in Houston. I mean, they're picketing him. They're protesting him as he, because he's strong. I'm just going to go ahead and tell y'all. He is strong. Australian accent and all. He just brings it. And he has these little PowerPoint videos and, and presentation. And um, it, it's, it's, it's going to be good. Man, we've gone from the Trinity and economic subordination to creation. I think this has been fun. I tell you, I am tired, and uh, like you, and we, we've got a full day of work ahead of us, so um, I'm going to hang around, not that I'm Mr. Bible Answer Man, but I'll hang around and try to answer some of your questions if you have them, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll go, okay? Father, we love you very much, and we are thankful, very thankful, that we can worship you with our minds today, we can be stretched and challenged, and, and God, also, we can just appreciate even more who you are as a triune God triunity God and what you have done one of the greatest things you have ever done is speak this universe into existence and thank you Lord for doing that thank you for creating us and loving us so much that you sought to redeem us to win us back to yourself and thank you Jesus for dying on the cross and rising from the dead thank you Holy Spirit for convicting us and showing us our need and thank you also for being with us and filling us and giving us the joy and the peace and the love that we so desperately need to live in this world. So God, we pray that you go with us today. Bless our people now as they go their various ways. 
Bless our folks who have been watching us online. May they be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.